you like to binge watch TV, did you know you could binge listen to podcasts? Head over to electronicmediacollective.com where they have podcasts for days. You like podcasts about wrestling? They have that. Do you like podcasts about TV and film? They have that. Do you like podcasts about horror? EMC has that too. Do you like comedy? Do you like books? Guess what? They've got you covered. Head over to electronicmediacollective.com Pick your favorite podcast today. Hey, Paul, look over there at the size of that moose. Son, that's no moose. That there is a pile of bulls. Okay, we need to make a couple quick adjustments here, here, and here, and you know what? Yeah, I think that's better. Away we go. Previously on X-Men. Welcome, Moose Pack, to an all-new episode of Bull Spit with Moose. I'm your host, Moose. Joining me today is a creative power couple with the drive of RoboCop and the combined pen strength that would even rival a young Hercules. From X-Men the Animated Series, please welcome Eric and Julia Lewald. Hello! Hi, hi there, Paul. How you guys doing? Un- un- unbelievably, during these days, it's it's a lovely day where we are right now, and we're having a good day. <laughs> yeah, we're sit- 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 sitting outside in Southern California, just in- enjoying the pathetically beautiful weather. I was hoping by now to be done with it, but what have you guys been up to during lockdown? You guys keeping yourselves busy? Boy, that's that's a fair question. We have been practicing. We can do it out here in Los Angeles. We've, we've been practicing severe social distancing and sort of quarantining in place, but we can do that. We've got a back porch, and it's really lovely here <laughs> sitting outside. Yeah, yeah that's a terrible. We've been seeing a lot of our family. Our, uh, our two sons... Uh, I've been spending long weekends here. They've uh, uh, one of them is working from home, so he's got more flexibility than usual. So that's actually uh, during this crunch time, we've been there's been more family events than than we've had in a while. But you know we're 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 getting we're getting through it fine, and and haven't we haven't had uh, there's been a lot of work to do, but we're getting a lot a lot done around the house that we've been putting off you know for a long time. I will say, though, sadly, we, we did have several smaller-sized cons and festivals lined up, and all of that fell through. And that's, that's been heartbreaking, because we really have only started doing that in the last two years since Eric's book came out. So that, that's been a lot of fun to go out and meet people, and we just haven't. <laughs> yeah, no, Comic-Cons are not exactly the best place for, for, to avoid a virus. So, yeah. So, yeah, that's, we, we've, we've missed that, but with luck... They'll be back in the fall, and so we're looking forward to that. Mm-hmm. I'm right there with you. I'm an artist. I sell wood burnings at conventions. Uh-huh. I miss my conventions. I think I would have done five of them by now, and so, yeah, missing them kind of sucks. Uh, you know, I don't even really miss the money. It, as a vendor, you know, it's kind of like running the uh, carny circuit. Uh-huh. You really miss the people that you're used to hanging out with at these things, your fellow vendors, the people that put these things on, the con-goers. I mean, even if you went home broke... If the atmosphere was right, hell, you know, at the end of the day, you had a good time, and that's what I miss. Yeah, yeah. still be yep. a, still be a special weekend. You got you got people that that share share your passions. In the course of your guys' career, you've worn many hats from story editor, consultant editor, executive story editor. <laughs> 
and every producer credit under the sun, Eric. He's on to us. Oh, yeah. no. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there's there's a weird thing out here in, in, in Hollywood with... Uh, with uh, credits and titles and what each thing means, and it gets very confusing, and it's different from one corner of the business to the other. And and uh, for instance, in like live action primetime shows, if you're a story editor, it means that you're like you're the new novice that just got hired on, you know, like out out of college. And if you're a story editor in, a, in, a, in an animated show, it usually means you're the showrunner that has to come up with the show and supervise all the writings. It's like the opposite end uh, of the scale. It's very, very confusing. Uh, all, boil them all down, and we either write a script for a show, in which case we just get a written by credit, and it's not confusing. <laughs> and and in, in, our, in, our, in animation corner, there aren't other names for it. If you write a script for the show, you just get a written by credit. You don't get associate producer, consulting producer, you know, semi-co-associate uh, producer, you just, you just get written by if you write a script. Um, and so, so if it says written by, we wrote a script on it. If it's any of those other dozen things, it means that we were in charge of the writing for the show, that we were the, the supervisor that you know, was hired to set up the show to start with, to pick the writers who are going to be on staff, and then as they wrote the script, fixing them and making sure everybody, you know, the executives of the network and the production people and the artists, make sure everybody's comments got worked into the script so that the poor writer didn't have to try to listen to 20 different people. You know, we took all the notes. We took did, dealt with all the politics. You know, we, we dealt if toy companies wanted, you know, the show to be different, and we didn't. All the writer had to do was write a good story. And then we kind of boss people, we supervisors have to fight all the fights. So it's it's one of those one of those two things is basically what we've been doing for the last thirty years is either just writing a script for somebody, uh, and we do it back and forth. We we write for some people that write for us at different times. It's just it's like whoever gets a gig. It's like we're we're a general contractor. If, you know, if we get a job that way, we hire all the people under us. Or if a friend of ours gets the gig, they hire us to do you know, four or five scripts for them. So it's pretty free for all out here, and uh, it's fluid. It's very fluid. Yeah, let's put it that way. Yeah. So uh, we uh, yeah, we were on staff back at, at Disney and and Hanna Barbera on, on late '80s, early '90s. That's pretty much not happening much most places anymore. It's pretty much you know piecework. It's it's gig work. And that's fine. Uh, you asked what we were doing during this, this lockdown time. Um, over the course of the last couple of years, we've written some scripts for a friend of ours for a show on Netflix. So that's how the world works, you know, who's got the job and, and um, where we fit into that. All right. I'm just going to take a stab in the dark here, but I'm going to assume that you were on staff at Disney during, say, the Gummy Bear, Darkwing Duck, Tailspin, uh, DuckTales, all those years, you know, my favorite shows growing up, like you defined an air, helped define an Aww, era. That's so great to hear. I mean, I have Darkwing Duck tattooed on my arm. Oh, all credit to Tad Stones, um, who I give credit to as being the guy who hired me at Disney. But, me too. But uh, Darkwing Duck uh, was his baby, and uh, darn. And <laughs> he was really the, the force behind Chip and Dale as well. That's when I got hired when they were doing Chip and Dale. And all of a sudden, so Julia, Julia ended up doing more Chip and Dales than anybody. She had, I think, 14 
uh, work on 14 out of the 65. Mm-hmm. It was a fun time, and it was time it was. they had a huge uh, staff of people there. Our writers and artists, there, must, there were over 100 of us, I bet, between the, you know, among all the offices. So it was a fun place. We are all you know, in our late 20s, early 30s, out and learning, learning the craft as we cranked the, out the Disney afternoon. In fact, the fellow I'm writing for now for the Netflix thing is someone we both met at Disney uh, all those years ago, also working on the Disney afternoon. So it's, you can make some nice people. <laughs> nice friends in 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 this business, um, I, and I recommend everyone just being nice to each other anyway. As a general rule of thumb, life's too short. Don't be a jerk. <laughs> you worked on another Disney animated show, which happens to be a timeless classic, and another one of my favorite uh, Disney properties, and that's Gargoyles. Right. Yeah. That was that was kind of a secondary thing. One of them, the first sixty-five. <laughs> Uh, was in charge of, and that was his baby. He yeah, was that, he crafted that from the yeah, ground up. Very much his baby. The uh, they finished that and then paused and thought, well, uh, they just decided they just bought ABC, and so Disney said, we got to put something on ABC. What do we have? And they said, well, we just finished Gargoyles. We were done with that. We just had not thought about it anymore. So, and so Michael Eisner said, well, quick, let's do a let's do another series. Let's do. 13 more, let's do at least a season more. We've got these characters, let's do something with them, let's do something new with them. I was hired on to be the story editor on that to 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 do, that's why they're in New York, and that's why The Goliath Chronicles. Goliath Chronicles was different and was specifically they, and I don't know why, because, <laughs> you know, it's, you know, it, it, when I'm a fan and I'm used to something, I'm not sure I want them to change it around and and mess with the, with the world. But it came down from the top that they wanted it, the Gargoyles name, but they wanted a different kind of series. So um, uh, Greg was you know, Greg was not going to be involved in that. But uh, uh, you know, we did a year of it. We had a great fun because they were really good characters. Mm-hmm. It just was you know it, it felt a little different. And I think most, even though I think it's some of the best writing we and and some of our dear close friends that worked on the show for us did. Um, it's different enough that I think that the core fans uh, don't care for it as much. You know, they they don't they don't understand why it was different from the original. And to be honest, I don't, I I have no I have no reason for them other than you know the the bosses wanted something different. Yep. It was more lighthearted than the original run too. You know. Right. It wasn't as gloomy and Scottish, and it and it wasn't as uh, serialized. They were more one-off standalones. Yeah, which they asked for. So yeah, but but it was it was it was a great experience. So the guy Jay Fukuda was the executive on that that hired us, and he's one of our closest friends. He's a wonder to work. Did that? Uh, he he moved over to MGM, and he's the one at Robocop, uh, Alpha Commando. Working with Jay on Gargoyles led directly to another really good job for us. Even with the lighter style of uh, episodes, I've always subscribed to the theory that if you're a fan of something, you know, you, you write it out to the end. Yeah. You know, and I was just happy to have new episodes, you know, just something new to watch. Oh, well, that's okay. Good. I hope, I hope they filled the void for you then. Yeah. I mean, th- there's been shows that just end way too soon, uh-huh. like uh, Pirates of Darkwater. Uh-huh. You know, we're talking a show that 30 years and I still don't know how this, you know, that show is supposed to end. <laughs> no, we're, we're fans of things as well, and if it can't end, 
if not well, at least not properly, it, that that sticks in my craw too. Yeah. That really does. And, and a lot of times that happens. It's a business thing. Yes, that most of the time. Most of the time, when when you get an abrupt stoppage like that, the creative people had planned to do something longer or larger, and then somebody just suddenly says, "Oh, you know, we're having financial troubles this quarter. Uh, stop production. Get rid of this." Or you know, the, the they lose advertisers or something happened, which is what happened to Exo Squad. Was at Universal, and two friends of mine and my Mark Edens and Michael Edens, who were heavily involved in X Men show, were, had played that out through 52 episodes and had laid out the last 13 to wind up a big serialized 65 episode project, and then Universal just at random said, Ah, we're done at 52 forget about it, and, and, and never finished. And that was frustrate, for frustrating for the fans of that show. But let me say, for the, for the fan folk out there, uh, the last 13 stories exist in a file cabinet somewhere in, <laughs> in Tennessee where the Eden, or, or Kentucky where the Edens brothers have retired to. But, yeah, that, it exists. It just it hasn't seen the light of day, those last 13. Release the scripts. Yeah, exactly. Forget the Snyder Cut. Release the damn scripts. Yeah. Oh. You know, you mentioned RoboCop, which leads this uh, interview to being very interestingly timed. My friends and I were talking recently about kids shows that were based from adult properties. You know, things that were made for kids off of stuff that were originally designed for adults. Like Beetlejuice, RoboCop, Stargate, Hercules. You know, interestingly, everything you guys worked on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. And now, you know, here we are. I guess my question is, how hard is it to tone those down? Specifically RoboCop, because RoboCop the movie was rough. I mean, it's not a kid-friendly movie, and yet you were able to make a kid-friendly cartoon. RoboCop the movie is ferocious. We I mean, love it, but it's ferocious. Yeah, yeah, and it's, it's funny as hell, but it's bleak, it, it was, dark. <laughs> it, they, you know, they they couldn't have gotten much much worse than, than what, what they showed. I, I just think it's a matter of I would have loved that movie even if it had been less gory because the characters were well drawn and the situation was interesting with you know this this dystopian Detroit future and this this idea of they've made this this. They've, they've, they slapped this guy together, and he's kind of part human, and they're taking advantage of him. And all, all those are the, the things that drew me to the movie. And the, extre- the extremity of the, the, the violence the, and the gore wasn't really, you know, I could lose some of that and still have loved the movie just as much, even though they did it beautifully, you know. So it's just knowing, trying to, to focus on the stories and the characters and letting the details of it. I mean, it's hard if it was something a lot more sexual, because that's that's hard to do. I mean, in X-Men, we had, you know, all these various love triangles, um, but it, it was never, it was just for kids, it never went past the, you know, I want to kiss you stage. If it were something, I think Young Hercules was almost a little harder for us when you mentioned in making some adult, because at the same time, Hercules and Xena were on TV, and there were these hour-long movies, shows, dramas, with very adult characters and blood and death and just really some pretty intense sexuality, like especially in Xena. 
was famous for that. Yeah, it was. And so suddenly, and also with Young Hercules, we had a more restrictive kid censor than we did on X-Men, believe it or not. So, so that was a real, that was walking a tightrope because people that would watch Young Hercules wanted similar level of intensity if they turned on the Young Hercules. And so we had to try to you know, make up for the things we couldn't show by trying to make it as dramatic as we could for those for those teenagers that are that are the stars. It was that was a challenge. And um, just going back to RoboCop, uh, the realization that with with X Men, that was a show that got the green light order from the president of Fox Kids, Margaret Lesh, who knew what she wanted in the show X Men, because she'd been trying to sell it herself for quite a few years, and so from the top down. Fox Kids had a handle on how they wanted X-Men Then they wanted it adult. And they wanted it to be adult. RoboCop had this weird needle to thread that it was being sold into syndication. It didn't have a network or a network president from the top saying, I want this show to be exactly this tone. Um, so at uh, RoboCop, we had to craft something that would hopefully appeal then to the syndication buyers looking for something for kids' animation but not being uh, turned off by you know the, the kind of uh, violence that RoboCop itself was, um, the movie was about. What about like uh, Beetlejuice, taking that grimy, nasty Michael Keaton Beetlejuice and turning him into, a, by nasty I mean disgusting, uh, turning him into a kid-friendly cartoon? The, the story of that is it had been on ABC for three seasons. Two seasons, I can't remember. Two, I think. Two, in any case. It had been on for a couple of seasons. And this very nice couple who, uh, Ted and Patsy, whose names, last names escape, Cameron and Anasty, there's the last names, forgive me, uh, it's, it's been 30 years, <laughs> they set the tone. We made it a little edgier and darker and more adult in the Fox year that I did, and that was just, that was coming down again from Margaret Lesh and Sydney Iwater at Fox. They were just starting out as a network, they needed a new show, they needed to try to differentiate themselves in major networks, and so they said, look, we're taking over Beetlejuice from ABC, we're buying the rights from them because they're kind of done with it, uh, but we wanted to freak out more, and we wanted to be less, a little less silly and playful and a little more, a little more nasty, and so we took it you know, somewhat in that direction, but yeah, that was that was a challenge. I mean, we took took it closer to the movie. Yeah, the the movie was was obviously was R-rated and 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 darker. The, an but, interesting. I'm interrupting in here, but an interesting tidbit. Uh, going back again to the beginning of Fox Kids uh, and and all the adult stuff that was happening on X-Men. Um, Eric, wasn't it that of all the shows that you've worked on that that were getting letters from parents yeah, in, in uh, high outrage over, you know, oh, this is violence or whatever, corruption or weirdness or, it was Beetlejuice. <laughs> it was yeah. an X-Men. Yeah, we were, we, were, we were concerned when we were pushing X-Men. You know, we looked at the comics in the early 90s and they were ferocious. I mean, they were, they were as intense and bloody and uh, as the RoboCop movie. They were R-rated, basically. Uh, so we tried to make the X-Men show as intense as the comics were, because that's what the fans were used to. And we were worried, and we talked to this, our censor, a wonderful lady, uh, Avery Coburn, um, and asked her after a year or so, you know, what's it like? Are, are the, are, is Fox getting nasty letters, or are they getting pressure to soften the show? Or is, is there a groundswell of, of uh, popular resistance to the intensity of the X-Men? And she said, no, believe it or not, people are accepting the level of violence quite 
well. I mean, it's obviously, it's an incredibly popular show, so people are watching, and they've got very few complaints about it. She said, as Julia said, the ma- majority of complaint letters they got was on Beetlejuice, and it was because Beetlejuice, because from devoutly religious people, because Beetlejuice was this creature that that lived, you know, below, and was you were having fun with him, and he was the lead of the show, and it was like a demon, a demonic character was getting to be a fun lead for their kids, and they hated it. So, yeah, Beetlejuice evidently got lots of uh, blowback for the, for that. Nothing against the devoutly religious, but man, can they be some party poopers. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they're the only group of people I know who, while their intentions are good, can cause that big of a stir over a TV show. I mean, yeah, he's a demon, but damn, it's a kid's show. Just let it go, guys. I mean, come on. That That's one of the challenges in, in any form of entertainment is uh, trying to be true to whatever your story is, but but also to appeal to as many people as possible. And uh, many times, uh, not everybody is on the same page with you on that. It's a challenge. Yeah, it's, a, it's a challenge. And we were stunned. We were really, out here in Hollywood, everybody assumes, oh, a show is for, for, for kids' shows. It's for two to, it's preschool. It's for two to five. It's for six to eight or eight to 11 or, you know, 11. Early te- tweens or early yeah, teens shows know. are that bifurcated. Yeah, they they they, they, they like try that. to narrow cast it. There are about six different categories of, of of audience that they're going for because they have advertisers paying for the shows and they have to try to explain to the advertisers, oh, you know that we have proof that eight to eleven year olds are going to love this show, and you get a lot of pressure often from executives to write a very narrow kind of story and and repeat it and keep it. Very, you know, very one, you know, one stroke to appeal to a certain to this to the age group that the that the advertisers are trying to sell to. With X Men, it one it, it got all the categories from from two to five to to adult. It it, it just it was popular everywhere. And Kids that, in college were watching it, which is which is was a real something that a lot of them couldn't get their heads around. You know, we tried to tell them if you do something that's exciting and fun and adult, then you'll get all the older people, and you'll get the younger people who want to watch it with their older brothers and sisters and, and want to get it, even if they don't quite understand everything that's going on. And we've had a lot of fans tell us that, that so, oh, you know, they saw it when they were five or six, and they loved it, and had no clue about half the things we were referring to or what was going on half the time. And then they watched it later, you know, as teenagers, and they got a lot more of it, and then they watched it as adults, and they got a lot more of it. And that's why why we think it was so successful before we dive into the show that almost wasn't yeah i mean uh what led you guys down the career path to want to become writers you know everyone has that one that one spark so what was it that was the uh spark for you that led you down the path to writing as a lifelong career well i i grew up in texas and i say that just to sort of put it out there that i am not from Hollywood. I, I had assumed I would go on to graduate school and like be a lawyer, be a doctor, something like that uh, when I was in college in Lubbock. And I, but I'd always, I was always writing, you know, just what, whatever was going on, you write, write something down in a notebook, just constantly writing. Senior year in a parking lot, a fellow student acquaintance said to me, you know, you, you like to write. And they pay people to write out in Hollywood. You know, why don't you try that? 
and it had never been mentioned to me in those terms before. What I'd never heard the idea that you could move to Los Angeles and you could maybe write and maybe get paid for it until that moment. Never occurred to me. And then it became this, I have got to try. So the short story is, I did drive out to Los Angeles. It took me 10 years to get that first opportunity. But during that time, it was also a process of constantly still writing, trying to figure out what the business is, trying to meet as many people as possible, trying to find a way to make that first break happen. And then when the the first break for me was uh, writing for children's animation at Disney afternoon, it's like, I'm here. I'm in. I am in all the way. I'm here for as long as I can ride this horse. (laughs) (laughs) um, And that's that's how it was for me. Yeah, On my side, um, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do with my life. Uh, Parents were educators, and and I've kind of decided against that. I fell in love with the movies in my as a teenager, and and became a uh, film major in college. And where was that, dear? In the University of Tennessee. So I'm not a, I'm not a Hollywood guy either. So in East Tennessee, we programmed the movies for the college and became film craze. And and I'd always I'd read a lot and I'd, I I loved telling stories, and it it was all it was you know very movie focused. And we got out of college, buddy of mine and I made a lot low, low, low budget uh, movie that we sold to Hollywood somehow and called Incoming Freshman. For the drive-through circuit. For, yeah, for the drive-in, <laughs> drive-in circuit. Oh, sorry, yeah, the drive-in circuit, yeah. Uh, but, but so, and then, you know, came out to Hollywood and didn't know anybody and just, you know, didn't, I mean, struggled for a few years there to figure out where I would fit in. Uh, my buddy, uh, Glenn Morgan, who worked on the movie with me in Tennessee, Ended up being a, a video, uh, a film and video editor, and uh, I stumbled. You know, I just was writing a lot and uh, writing scripts with friends, and just hoping and hoping. Just kept on writing, and then uh, I, I moved, and a neighbor had a job at Hanna Barbera, and, and just told me, "Look, you write all the time. They're hiring. They they just started in the late '80s, you know, I think it was eight, or mid mid '80s, '84, '85." Uh, they started uh, what was called syndication series, where before it was just Saturday morning, and they'd uh, each year they'd only make 13 new half hours of animation for each show. Well, then toy companies and people discovered, oh, well, we could show shows five days a week in the afternoon or in the morning before school, and do that 13 times five. You do 65 episodes at a time, and sell a lot of toys that way. And so there was suddenly a boom in 84, 85 in animation writing jobs. And I guess a neighbor worked ahead of our bear, showed one of my scripts to his boss. They let me in the door, and I got a script on Challenge of the Gobot, my first show, and didn't turn back. So that was, that was my, my way in. It was, I just wanted to write TV and movies, and... Uh, and it happened that Hanna-Barbera was the first store that was open to me. That's a hell of a first store to open, too. Yeah. Especially back then. I mean, it was crazy. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean, hell, they were shooting products out left and right, just show after show, hit after hit. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes, they were. So it sounds to me that you guys, once you hitched your wagons to that goal of writing, you guys just said, screw it. That's my goal. That's what I'm going for. I'm going to be a writer, and nothing's going to stop me. <laughs> and what you see a lot more these days, though, is 
people want the goal or they say they want their goals, but when they hit that very first stumbling block, lock, I'm sorry, they start to uh, dial it back and just kind of give up. I, I will say they're, they're <laughs> resilience is not a bad thing. And persistence. <laughs> and right? persistence. Um, and, and also, um, Eric and I will use the example. Say if you wanted to be a car designer, you probably want to be in Detroit, you know. And if you wanted to um, play ice hockey, you'd probably want to be in a in a state where there was ice hockey, you know. At, at back in the '90s, you know, um, wanting to write for entertainment meant at the time being in Los Angeles. I think there's a lot more flexibility now, uh, and there's so many more outlets for people. Uh, to sort of make that happen for themselves, but but just being able to get up and move somewhere um, is a challenge not everyone's willing to to take. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I remember when I was younger, just wondering, and we get people ask us all the time from out of state. Well, you know, uh, computers are all connected. Can't I just you know write from Tennessee or from Massachusetts or wherever I am? And no, because there are probably 50 people as talented as you for each job, and you need to be here. You need to be hanging with the people and making the friends and knowing what's going on and be there during that one special moment where suddenly an opportunity happens, like that, like my neighbor. If, if my neighbor hadn't offered me the, you know, to, to show my work to the to Hanna-Barbera boss, I may never have had an opportunity to write. Uh, you know, you just you never know when that day's going to happen, and if you don't live here, where so much of the work is handled, uh, then you know you just don't know when the opportunities arise. So, listener, if you want to be a writer, remember commit, put yourself out there, commit to your craft, and remember location, location, location. Yes, I, with the right location counts. Uh, I will say though, there's so much activity happening in Atlanta these days. You know, uh, and and see, everything seems to be moving to Georgia. <laughs> Well, hey, we could get into the whole uh, argument of women's reproductive rights, but we're not going to do that. We're not going to do that right now. But, um, yeah, just it, depending on what your pa- what is A, what is your passion, and uh, how do you want to try and express that? For, like I said, I was always writing, whether it was a short story, whether it was poetry, whatever. I was always constantly writing, but then sort of having it click that, wait, I love television, I love film, People can do that and get paid for it if they're really lucky. That's when I'm going to do that, and I'm going to figure out how, and I'm going to do what I have to do to make that happen. I I wasn't married. I didn't have any kids. I was footloose and fancy free and could do that. So that's also part of it. You know, uh, take once you have other responsibilities, you really need to uh, pay attention to those responsibilities. But if you do have the opportunity, and that is something you want to do. You know, that's then you might want to consider doing that. From what I've seen, writers are a dime a dozen. Good writers, however, now those are hard to find. <laughs> that's well. I hope uh, I'm, I'm going to I'm going to choose to assume you're including us in the latter category. But yeah. <laughs> I mean, I am, but I, I I would think that your credits put you in the latter category. I mean, your work kind of speaks for itself. You guys are amazing writers and on that same note i think it's time we should probably strap into our own versions of cerebro sit down and talk about x-men the animated series all right 
is this where we all go na 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 the earworm of theme songs once you hear it you just can't stop and you know what it's from oh and i'm going to jump in ron wasserman the composer of that theme song uh deserves credit for that doesn't always get it because of various uh financial shenanigans uh, with with the credits issues, but he wrote that one, and he wrote the Power Rangers theme song. And yeah, I'm hoping to reach out to him soon to talk about those. Oh boy, howdy! That yeah, and that kick-ass intro. There you go. Yeah, because like I said, that earworm just as soon as you hear, you know it's the X-Men. My seven-year-old son, who skips the intro on everything, won't skip the X-Men intro. That's great. As we say, family done right, nicely done there, Dad. Now. Eric, your book's called Previously on X-Men, The Making of an Animated Series. Now, after reading this book, I feel like it should have been called Previously on X-Men, making it the show that almost wasn't. (laughs) Because, I mean, you guys hit every roadblock you could think of, and then some. I mean, damn. Yeah, yeah, really. Yeah, it's it's hard for people to know uh, how hard it is the show together sometimes and one of the reasons that it's it's hard just to to get a show done there's so many there's so so many people involved and so much uh struggle to keep it all kind of focused and everybody pointing in the same direction but in this case there were a lot of things against it and it it seemed to uh wonder one of which could have swamped us but it seemed to focus everybody's attention, and I think everybody pushed extra hard, put more of themselves into it to keep, to keep it on track. And, uh, yeah, there were all sorts of times where it could have fallen apart, where the wrong person could have come in creatively. Instead of that, everybody just kind of worked overtime to get the show done. And once it was successful, that kind of, uh, that kind of took care of a lot of the, those problems and a lot of those worries and you know more money was put into it but not that first, much but that first season was really was really a struggle for everybody and you're right there were lots of times where it could have just just evaporated and you, you know there are thousands of shows that get made out here and <clears throat> hundreds you know get on the air and you know there there're just there're only dozens that really you know stick with people forever and you know we all have our dozen that that have meant the most to us and we're just we're just really thrilled and humbled that the x-men became that show for a certain number of people and and, you know we don't know where how the magic happens because as you know you know if you look at our credits we've each worked on more than 40 different shows over the last few decades and this is the one where it all came together just right for us, we think. And we don't know and we don't know how to duplicate that. We don't know how to make it magic twice or or, or in the same way. Uh yeah, it seemed like any time you guys started to gain traction, you'd get the uh rug pulled back out from under your feet and you'd start that uphill climb again. I've yeah. heard about troubles in production, but damn, it seemed like this show was cursed. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, I just, I, I think that when, you know, just the thing about uh, you know, 13 half hours of storytelling and all the craft that goes into it, um, I'm not sure if it's easier for live action people 
because they're less variables. Uh, you know, although they have, they you know they've planned to do a a big scene and there's a there's a thunderstorm or you know you know stuff gets delayed, people get sick, people get hurt, you know stuff gets thrown at people, and by the time you're done, you notice a lot of movie and TV people, they're just exhausted. They just they just want to find some place to recoup for a week so they can get back to normal. But I think more more than people realize, there are ups and downs to to getting a show done, and you ha- you hope you've got the right creative people. But if you don't have all the right support people fighting battles for you, then you can be the most creative person in the world, and the show doesn't get finished or the show doesn't uh, doesn't hold together because all those other people are just as important. The ones you know fighting the battles for to keep. You know, to I don't know to get the right airtime for you that could make a difference. To 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 get the right advertisers, to to get the right cast. We always think, you know, what a big de- you know, you look back at shows you love and you just assume that oh, you know, it made sense that all those people were cast in it. Well, no, sometimes it's a big fight to get the right people, and then if you get the right people for the role, sometimes they don't get along with each other. And you need to spend, you know, all of that extra energy to to get the, you know, to to hold the thing together while the while the siblings are fighting. So there's a lot. Getting through a show is again, there's perseverance involved. Perseverance in getting in getting into the into the jobs out here, and then perseverance in seeing them through to the end, and making sure that that the quality doesn't drop off because there are, there's always a temptation, oh, it'll be okay, you know, all these people are screaming at me to change this or to let go and, and not do another, you know, not spend another week making it better, eh, it'll probably be okay. If, if you listen to that temptation, your your project can go astray, and it's, it's, it's easy to give into it. We all do it. Well, my understanding from the book, just on the vision standpoint, you guys just had too many cooks in the kitchen. I mean... Uh-huh. You had your team that had a cohesive vision and direction on where you wanted to go. Marvel had their input that they wanted to direct the show and where it was going. Fox pretty much just said, here, here's a show. Do what you need to do. Get the show out. And if these other guys would have just taken a step back, just let you produce the show that you wanted to do, it would have gotten done. Everyone would have gotten paid. Fox would have gotten their product, and everyone would have been happy. I'm going to jump in here and, and take it back, take it back a, a few steps earlier, even, um, that X-Men the Animated Series wasn't even Margaret and Sidney Iwaner and uh, Larry Houston and Will Minio's first efforts at an X-Men Animated Series. That honor goes to uh, Pride of the X-Men, and that was heartfelt, passionate. They, they wanted this to work so bad. Margaret was making this happen in order to use it as a selling tool to say, this is how great an X-Men show can be. Don't you want to buy it? Because she'd been trying for a long time when she was there at Marvel uh, to, to, to try and get an X-Men show on the air. And by on the air, I mean with ABC, NBC, or CBS. Those were your three major networks back then. Couldn't get a bite. So made Pride of the X-Men, and that was one where there were definitely too many cooks in the kitchen, and as a result, uh, they couldn't get that. They couldn't sell that show to make it into a series. 
Then when Margaret became president of Fox Kids, um, it, and the decision was to make X-Men again, at that point, uh, Will Minio and Larry Houston had already been through the experience of having made Pride of the X-Men, uh, and so now we're lined up sort of shoulder to shoulder saying, look, you, I will, I'm willing to put my you know, job opportunity on the line, but I'm not going to do this. And a couple, three times, everybody did that um, because they'd had that experience before in Pride of the X-Men where, where they hadn't been able to, to put their foot down. And, drum roll, that's how you got an Australian Wolverine <laughs> in Pride of the X-Men. And you might not think that's the kind of thing that matters, but Larry and Will and Margaret, they were all big Marvel fans. But they knew it was wrong. Some executive higher up than they were at that time for Pride of the X-Men had checked the box office results, and the number one movie that year was Crocodile Dundee. said, you know, kids like Australians. Make Wolverine Australian. That's how that decision got made. So by the time X-Men the Animated Series came along, those same people were like, mm, no, my foot goes down here because I couldn't do it before, but I'm doing it now. And that's how X-Men the Animated Series came to be what it was because there were people with real passion. Ironically, fast forward to live action, the best Wolverine's an Australian Wolverine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Don't yeah. you love that? I think that's a beautiful circle. The circle of life right there. Yeah. Right there. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah, but, but you know, it, it's weird. It's, it's hard to know what's going to be successful in the end. And so people have a lot of money and a lot of interest in this thing from the beginning. And it takes so long to make an animated show. It takes eight months or so, eight, nine months from when you start it to when you're on the air. And so it's tempting for people to hedge their bets with something like making Wolverine Australian or right. or in Pride of the X-Men putting like 20 different mutants in this sh- little short 22-minute story so that you couldn't keep track of any of them because somebody in sales says, oh, well, we'll sell more toys if we've got more different characters thrown in the show and it completely threw the, you know, the story off. You know, they're not trying to ruin it, <laughs> but... Some of them have kind of very narrow ideas of what they think is important. It's like the traditional fight among advertisers. You know, if you're trying to make a 30-second ad for somebody, and the simplest thing is, oh, well, let's, let's see our product. Let's see product placement. Let's see our product in action. And sometimes just seeing the can of soup for 26 seconds isn't what sells it. It's something more creative. It's something different. And so different people wanting different things made prominent, then then you have chaos and you have something that doesn't make anybody happy. And as a luckily, we were able to hold off all the people that wanted to change the show during those critical eight months until we could show them that it was successful. And then once it was successful, you know, we didn't get the fights anymore. I mean, we, it's still a challenge to make a good show, but you don't get people, powerful people, people with influence, saying you have to change things. It has to be different because I think something else would be better for it. You've proved what's best for it, so all those arguments uh, fade away, luckily. So the four, second through fifth seasons were much easier politically than the first season. I think I speak for all X-Men fans when I say I want to thank you 
for putting your foot down and saying, no, we're not going to have X-Men sheets. We're not going to have Wolverine and Cyclops walkie-talkies. We're not going to do the shameless product placements in the show. It just, it, it wouldn't fit. <laughs> now, if you were doing a show about Deadpool, then, then it would fit. You know, he's the type of fourth wall breaking character that it would fit in. It would, and, and he'd, he'd probably, he'd, he'd comment on it. He'd say, hey, check out my jammies. <laughs> exactly. That's his character. But, I mean, in the X-Men world, they're not buying their own merchandise. No, 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 yeah. You know, I mean, and X-Men the Animated Series wouldn't hold up as well as it does today if all that extra bullcrap would have been added to it because it would have really had that, like, kitschy feeling to it. You know, it just, it would have just been loaded down with crap. And the storylines are just as good today as they were back in the early 90s. I mean, come on. Well, thank you for saying that, because that's that's a hard thing. It's, you know, some shows that I loved when I was younger, I think, haven't date, dated well. And it didn't mean that they weren't, you know, really fun to take part in, you know, to enjoy back then. But there, I think, uh, you know, there's something about the pace and the kind of stories we told that has made them still look fresh to people you know, 25, 30 years later, which is a nice feeling. It's nice that we're able to talk, you know, new audiences and meet people that loved it as, I mean, loved it as kids, and now they're parents, and they're, they're introducing it to kids, and the kids love it. Now, you touched on it earlier where everyone assumes that cartoons are written for a certain age group. Yeah. Now, let's see, 92, oh, Jesus, I was, uh, well, anyway, I was, I, I, I was a youngin. Let, let's just leave it at that. <laughs> anyway. Uh, it, it didn't feel like it was talking down to me, like most animation shows of the time. It had that higher form of writing where, you know, like you said, yeah. college kids were watching it. Little kids, like myself at the time, were enjoying it because it was flashy. It had superheroes that you knew and loved. Uh, as you got older, you kind of picked up on the characters and how they were developing. Uh, as you got into the teenagers, you started to understand more of the correlatives of, you know, the metaphors and stuff. And then college and young adult, you really got the full package. And it was that type of writing that made the show popular then and helps it stay so prevalent and such a lasting powerhouse that it is today. Yeah. And like I mentioned when I first uh, messaged you, the measuring stick, as it were, for all X-Men iterations to follow. Because everything that is X-Men is compared to X-Men, the animated series, in when it comes to quality. I will tell anyone who listened to me that there had been 30 years of X-Men and uh, comic books. That was a whole rich, fertile universe that existed when Eric got the call from Fox Kids, let's do an X-Men animated series. And there is now a billion-dollar film franchise, live action, based on X-Men. I will still argue that the animated ser- X-Men the animated series was the gateway for a universe of fans to find those characters and then become the fans of the live action films. Because uh, as, as giant as the comic book audience was at the time, it still was a fraction of what a television audience needed to be in order to you know, uh, hang on ratings-wise. So for, while there were hardcore fans who came to the show knowing what the X-Men were, 
there was the challenge of introducing the rest of the world to who who are the X-Men. And the animated series for me is the thing that did that. Well, let's go back to what you said about uh, prior to the X-Men. I mean, people were able to sell a Hulk animated series, you know, an Iron Man animated series. But, it, well, Spider-Man animated series. Mm-hmm. Hell, they did that multiple times, but you can't sell X-Men? You, if you had stopped people on the street back then in 1992 and said, name me five superheroes, Batman, Superman, maybe Spider-Man. Wonder Woman, Spider-Man, and they might start. But the X-Men was not, as, as, as big as it was in the world of comics, it was not as universally known by your average guy on the street. And this was a world where there was no Internet. There was not this kind of instant communication or easy sharing of, of stuff that there is today. Uh, there was nothing, there was no way for something to go viral back then. <laughs> so the animated series was the way that introduced that universe to a lot of people. And then X-Men the Animated Series comes busting out like a juggernaut, and now everybody's talking about them. You know, kids are like, I want to be Wolverine. Yeah. I want to be Gambit. They even want to be Cyclops. Hey, if you're a gal, you got to be Storm, and that was a kick-ass, kick-ass character. Because in my opinion, she could fly. Yeah, they even uh, brought out more of the female heroines. Yes. Yeah, and we didn't even do that self-consciously. We just picked the most interesting group of people that had the, that would be the most fun to watch their powers in animation. And it happened that half of them were, were female. Uh, we really thought, uh, we discovered that super-boosted you know, the girl audience, that was the, a big surprise to the people that put the show on, that, that they got as many girls watching as they did, because they used to just refer to it as boys' adventure shows, and they just assumed girls wouldn't watch. And, of course, they did watch X-Men, so mm-hmm. that, was a, that was a real bonus. Well, you know, as a comic book fan, the thing I really liked about X-Men was you had something for everybody. You yes. know, you had Beast, who was there for, like, the bookworms and the scientists. And then you had Cyclops, who was there for the, the, the kind of nerdy community, just the poindexter types. You say that about him, but I will argue that he had the toughest job being a good guy. It's very hard to be the good guy sometimes, but, but yes. All right, in all fairness... When he was written, he was written at the same time Captain America and Superman was written, and I didn't really like them either, <laughs> because they were like... Straight-laced guys. Yeah. yeah. They were just like, ha-ha, I'm a superhero, yeah. <laughs> and you have to do what I say. Later, when the characters got a little bit more grit to them, I was like, all right, I could tolerate these guys. But no, I mean, you had Wolverine, the knucklehead from Canada... Uh, you had Storm, uh, you had something for everybody. You got to finally see, after you add the animation, everything you've read as a comic book fan come to life. You know, you got to see Wolverine taking people out. You get to see Gambit, the raging Cajun, doing his thing with the cards. And then you also get the emotion. You get, uh, Wolverine mourning his... (laughs) Yeah, that's right. We're going into your Optimus Prime moment here. (gasps) Yeah. Yeah, we just wanted to make sure that 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 the jeopardy was real, and the way to do that is to to have a heroic sacrifice, and and we we did it, and it it more people, the majority of people that talk to us about the show bring that up. They say, you know, I knew from episode the beginning of episode two when Morph died, that and that they all breathed for him that the show was different, 
and and yeah, it just it just seemed real straightforward to us that we're writing it. It's just we can't we can't have it be play pretend action. It has to be real action with real consequences. Unfortunately, though, you guys kind of backpedaled it a little bit, just like Hasbro did by bringing him back. Even though you gave him PTSD, unfortunately, you still brought him back. Well, now in bringing him back. You know from the book that we didn't want to. <laughs> no, I know, and that had to suck. They were like, bring him back. You're like, no, we killed him. And they are like, no, the fans love him. You're like, no, he's dead. He should stay dead. And ultimately, they're like, yeah, he needs to come back. Yeah, exactly. Because, yeah, it always confused me until I read the book, and then, yeah, I read your guys' book, and I was like, oh, that's why it happened, you know? Now it all makes sense. I was like, he's dead. Why is he back? That's exact. yep. Stop toying with my emotions. He was supposed to stay dead. But the way Eric, you and Mark Edens thought to bring him back then, given that was your mandate, that, hey, no guys, sorry, no, the, the fans have spoken, bring Morph back. Bringing him back as someone who was suffering as he was from um, his, his, his own uh, PTSD made him such a compelling um, uh, adversary for the X-Men. Because he, he, here's someone that, if you started with the show, everybody loves Morph. Morph's everybody's best friend. Is, you know, Wolverine loves him. You know. And then to have him come back, the way he came back, truly having felt betrayed, truly having been terrified that they you know, left him to die, uh, that he, he could really cause them harm with uh, the the rage and the anger he felt and we see that and that 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 was that was sort of one of those uh you want to call it serendipitous that there was no plan to bring him back and then when the edict came down that you had to bring him back oh my god how do you make lemonade out of these lemons well yeah i mean story-wise you get conflicted wolverine who is happy to see his friend and then all of a sudden is like oh no that's not my friend yeah yeah. And now all of a sudden he has to figure out, okay, what am I supposed to do here? Yeah. Now, don't get me wrong. It was still a very compelling story, but I was one of the millions that was very sad and extremely upset when Morph died. I mean, you introduce this character, you get to love him, and he's dead. I mean, heartstrings. And I was just getting over the death of Optimus Prime, so... Oh, okay, okay. All right. That was a twofer right there. That was back-to-back, -back. okay. And in my role as, a, as someone who, who was a writer on the series, um, the edict I was given for the episodes I wrote, you do not write down to that audience. It may be an animated show. It may be considered for kids' television, but you write up. You do not write down. And with that, you know, kids, kids can handle that, you know, um, or if they can't, let let us try and find a way to uh, to share this kind of story with everyone. Um, these horrible, sad things happen, and watching how people uh, deal with these things is is not not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, so all credit again, and also I, if we mentioned already, Avery Coburn, a broadcast standards and practices who had the courage to allow that story to be told, who, had the, who, ha who understood what X-Men was 
so that when Eric came up with the idea of the killing of a character in the first two-parter, to establish what the goals are, to establish that this wasn't play acting, she agreed. And I, you're not going to find many kids broadcast standards and practices people um, who had that kind of uh, courage. And all cre- again, all credit to her. For years, I had a chip on my shoulder about Morph's death. I couldn't for the life of me figure out who in their right mind would introduce this lovable character and then within two episodes kill the guy off. You know, it just, it, it, it boggled my mind. And then it wasn't until I read the book that it clicked that, okay, you needed something as a catalyst. You had to prove the stakes were real. You know, you couldn't just have the X-Men show up and be like, ha-ha, we're the X-Men, we save the day, we take a few bumps, and we're good to go. You had to show that this is what we're fighting for. Uh, It's kind of like in Avengers when Coulson died. You had to have that moment where something actually happened. Well, because otherwise you, you run into what you want to call the professional wrestling problem. If, if everybody just resets to zero and starts over again, then what were the stakes that you were fighting for previously? You know, what, what, what's really at stake here? For good or ill, uh, the sacrifice of Morph, I think, really made the animated series stand out that much more in terms of the, kind, the, the, the sort of truth it was willing to tell. You know, I mentioned that these stories still hold up today, and without getting super political, I'd say I, I noticed that some of these stories would, are pretty much right on the nose today. If you mean the, the, the hate and rage people feel toward the other. Yeah, that's pretty much right on the nose. Yeah. Oh, my God. I, again, I want a uh, hat tip to Eric and, and Mark Edens, who crafted out the, the first 13 episodes there. The idea of using the Sentinels as the sort of big bad uh, of the series rather than, as in Pride of the X-Men, it was immediately a mutant-on-mutant fight. Here, by bringing in the Sentinels and this secretive government quasi-operation where it was, hey, humans, you need to be scared of these mutants because you don't know what they can do to you, but these Sentinels can help keep you safe. You know, it, it, it set up a really nice um, dynamic that allowed us to sort of explore what was Charles Xavier's own code versus what was Magneto's code. Uh, and you kind of, you could, they both had compelling arguments why it was a good thing to work with humanity and why it was a bad thing to work with humanity. Uh, and here we are in the year 2020, and there's still a lot of hatred and rage toward the other out there in the world. You know, I sometimes sort of laugh. Regardless of what the other is. Regardless of what the other is. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. There is always the other. As long as you can, as long as there's someone you can point to and label the other, there will be these kinds of conflicts, and sadly. because of those conflicts, it's crazy to think that, you know, some uh, stories you guys wrote in the 90s are still relevant today and will be relevant for ages. Oh, I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> oh. I mean, on one hand, that's epic storytelling from your guys' end, but... On the flip side, that's very tragic for the tale of mankind. I mean... Well, there you go. There you go. But, but if in some way the telling of those stories and the use of animation in the world of X-Men, the animated series, exposed people to what we were talking about earlier. If you're a young kid, there's special effects and there's bright colors and there's people doing these crazy things in the sky... But as you get older, you realize we're serious discussions of, of prejudice and, um, 
and, and a systematic you know, uh, hatred and discrimination. It's like, wow, um, as people, as younger folks sort of came to see the show with that as they grew older, that's a wonderful thing that the series could do then would be to sort of open people's eyes and minds to that kind of conversation. To say, no, it's not necessarily right to just hate somebody automatically because they are the other. You know, <laughs> let's, let's have a conversation. We can hope. I mean, it definitely showed that just because somebody's different doesn't mean they need to be treated as such or even feared. And that's what I always loved about X-Men, the comics and the show, was, you know, the commentary and everything behind it. And, you know, I gotta say, the writing you guys did on X-Men the Animated Series really portrayed that social commentary very well. Ah. Well, that, thanks, thanks, Paul. And, you know, it was, you know, we just were just trying to tell the true stories we knew how at the time, and and we're lucky enough to have the opportunity to 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 be able to do it. So yeah. So before I let you guys go, uh-huh. I mean, with as thick as this book is, I could do this all day. I mean, <laughs> forget about it. So I'm glad you enjoyed the book. You know, we've got another one coming in in October. Say what now? It's it's not it's very different from that one. That one is all you know is just dense with with detail. The 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 new one, Marvel is involved, so it's just full of art. Oh my. So it's going to be like a coffee table book about the show. Well, I know what I need to order now. Oh, good. I, it, it's the perfect accidental Compliment. companion piece to a uh, previous on X-Men, which, like you said, is a real good book, which if you're an X-Men fan, that's a good thing. But then the, um, the new book coming out called uh, X-Men, The Art and Making of the Animated Series, uh, it's available for pre-order on Amazon as well as from Abrams Publishing, uh, which is the publishing house putting this book out. It, as Eric said, it was done with uh, Marvel's full cooperation and Disney's, and we got to crawl through some artists' storage sheds and find stuff that hadn't seen the light of day in 30 years. It's very exciting. Yeah, it's very fun. So, no, I, uh, but I appreciate you. Uh, I do appreciate you calling and asking us about this, and mm-hmm. and uh, hope that you're. Your listeners will have fond memories of the show and, and like to have heard about it. Yeah. Uh, is there uh, like one show you guys would like to uh, revitalize or head up before you uh, call it quits for you, the? Uh, well, I guess before you guys end your uh, careers. <laughs> quits with our careers. <laughs> oh, no, but that okay. Here, here. Let me let me put this out there. I'm gonna I'm gonna speak it into the universe so that maybe it can therefore happen. I would like Disney slash Marvel to start putting out those uh, direct-to-home video movies like DC has been doing so successfully these last several years with Batman, with Superman, all those animated shows. I would love to revisit X-Men, the animated series, as uh, a home movie event. Or, you know, an animated event in in theaters, whatever. But that would... There are some interesting directions that the show... The way the series wrapped up, and there's that itself would be a great jumping off point to uh, to go back and visit those characters again. You hear that, Disney? Balls in your court. Well, guys, can you tell fans where they could find out more about previously on X Men? So yeah, there you go. We are um, on. We have a web presence at xmentas.com, which is for X Men: The Animated Series. And I'm on Twitter every day, and that's at xmentas, also for X Men: The Animated Series. And come find us. Uh, we are on face. We have a page on Facebook, X Men the Animated Series. We have Instagram, 
But so if you're a fan of the show, please come find us, and uh, that would be great. Well, folks, you can find them by following the links in the episode description. And you can find me over on Twitter at the handle Moose Media Inc. Or over at electronicmediacollective.com alongside other great podcasters. Guys, it was great chatting with you today. Couldn't have asked for a better uh, couple people to chat with. So just want to thank you for stopping by. Oh, thank you so much. A lot of good podcasts out there. And unless you heard it here, probably just a load of bull spit. So until next time, take her easy. Ooh, that sure was some bull spit, but I sure had fun. Junior, you need some help. Be sure to tune in next time.